Dear Holy Father, thanks again for this day. Thank you for this time we have together in your house. Thank you for allowing us to be witness to um, two young men being baptized and following you in obedience. And I pray, Lord, that would be an example to us all. Um, that we, we take steps in our faith in, in sometimes really big leaps and sometimes pretty slow, but it doesn't stop. Like we aren't done growing. And that's what we've been trying to focus on for the last several weeks, that it's our whole lives that matter to you, not just our eternity. That is important, and it's part of the whole story of the gospel of rescuing us from, as Brian shared earlier, our rebellious ancestors and Adam and Eve. But there's also a lot of joy to be lived here on earth before we reach that prize in eternity. And that happens with our relationship growing in you. I pray, Lord, as we look at celebration today, you'd help us to see that that's something we can pursue here, that it's okay to be happy and to be filled with joy as believers in you. We love you. Amen. So last week I challenged you with a kind of putting together a three to five year plan kind of a thing to say like the the point was that when we plan and we set things in motion that that we have we can find our purpose and we find our purpose in life which is to glorify God to make disciples then we can see how the nuances of that happen. For some of us we are called to full-time ministry. For some of us, that scares us to death, and we don't want any part of that. Some of us are called to own businesses and have employees that we have influence other, over, and others of us are called to work for someone and have maybe influence over the person that writes our paycheck. We have influence on in our homes and our families and our communities and our neighborhoods and all the hobbies and things we love to do. You have a, a positional authority and a positional space where you get to, to show Jesus to people. And so I challenge you to put together a, a, maybe a three to five year plan, like look at the purpose, like see things in the future and some hopes and some dreams. And then you start to see yourself praying and asking God to move in those areas. But then we kind of left hanging. What's it look like to then ourselves become disciples? What's it look like to grow in our own disciple-ness? And so I have a question to start, which if you've been in church for a little bit, then you've heard this word discipleship. Um, there are churches that hire this position specifically and say the minister, the pastor of discipleship. We'll have discipleship movements. We'll have all these. What, what, is, what do you hear when you hear that word? And then the second question is, what kind of emotion does it evoke? If you hear, we're going to have a new discipleship effort here at First Christian Church, do you immediately go to classrooms and programs and tests and personality tests and class 101 102 103 104 is the saddleback model kind of went through or do you think of sunday school or do you think of youth group or do you think of and what the church has done in its various expressions over the years has had different ways of saying this and we'll say like everything that's educational everything that's growing and knowing the bible is discipleship because it takes the connotation around being an apprentice. You're an apprenticeship, a discipleship. We're going to grow to be disciples of Christ. And none of those are bad or wrong, but I think we've lost the, the true foundation of what Jesus did with his disciples for three years. It's not just graduating from one class to the next. It's not just reading a certain list of books. I remember very early in my... Um, journey towards full-time ministry, a, a pastor that was mentoring me, he's the one who introduced me to inductive Bible study, and I fell in love. I just wanted to teach the Bible, study the Bible, 
And then he said, hey, we should do, enter into a discipleship relationship. And I'm like, well, I don't, okay, whatever that means. That sounds great. And he gave me a list of books we were going to read together over the course of two years, and we were going to discuss them. I like to read. It was fantastic for me. Um, but there was so much more happening in that relationship that wasn't just reading the books and discussing them. There's a time and a place for that, and I lean towards that. But what about all the other stuff in life? What about all the other areas of life where you're going to have to watch people and be with people and learn from people? And is it just about reading books and taking tests and knowing things? Because if we're very rich in our theology and we have a great understanding of the Bible and we're really good at the answers and, and knowing all the facts and the truths and, and what happens when life bumps us or when things go sideways or someone you talk to wants nothing to do with those things. And if you start to compartmentalize your life, I go to church on Sunday, I go to youth group on Sunday night, Tuesday night, I volunteer in this capacity, then we begin to feel like discipleship is just checking some boxes, showing up on time, being there for these things, and serving this capacity. And quickly, we can start to see that our lives of faith with Christ and our lives outside of church and those institutions can start to become separated. And the goal of what we've talked about all summer is that your whole life would be aligned in the singular mission of knowing Christ in a deeper way. And you being able to share that truth with others. Now, I'm not negating reading books because I'm not going to stop reading books. I'm going to share some stuff I've just learned in a new book I've been reading the last few weeks with you in just a minute. There's power in community and small group and discipleship in our the the discipleship bands. There's power in coming together in community. But if that's all that there is, then we're missing the model that Jesus walked through with the disciples. And I think the thing missing is celebration. I think when our walk with Christ becomes a journey of effort and work instead of a place of joy, then I think that's when we start to get stagnant, it's when we start to lose heart. We need to celebrate. And I'm going to show you that Jesus liked to party like it was 1999. <laughs> Which that song needs to be updated, and there's a whole lot of theology and princes. Anyway, well, that's a whole other sermon. This is from the book, The Whole Life, that we suggested to you. That's kind of been the model that we're walking through. And I really liked what um, Eliza said here. You might say there are two types of people in the world. People who need a reminder that Jesus wept, and people who need a reminder that Jesus celebrated. If some of us are really steeped in the emotion of Christ and his sacrifice and his love for us. And we, we love that, and that's where we sit because we are very in tune with our own depravity, and we, we are passionate about his work on the cross for us, and those are good things. But then some of us are really terrible at the partying part. And so we can go grow really strong in the facts and the details and the passion and love of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for us, and we feel very sad in our sin and we want it to be removed from us and then some of us don't feel that way because we feel that when the cross was done it's done and now it's time to celebrate all that he's done for us and we need each other we need each other today we're going to talk about the celebrating the first part is in luke 5 some of you are familiar with this passage where jesus calls the tax collector Levi out of the tree 
It's a Levi and his overwhelming gratitude towards Jesus for this moment of this, this tax collector who's a Jew who's been helping the Roman Empire. He's ostracized by his entire community, and all of a sudden Jesus comes along and says, hey, you, come on, follow me. He's overwhelmed in this change of his faith, and he's been accepted, and he's seen even in the middle of being completely cast out by all of society for what he's doing for his job. And Levi throws a party. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And so you get the classic. Like, is church always the best place to talk to people outside of faith? No. Jesus shows up and he meets people right where they're at. And he's in, like, that's a big deal for Jesus. This, this amazing rabbi, teacher of the word, God in flesh, that sinners actually liked him. They wanted to be with him. If you are so solid in your faith and so righteous in your faith that people outside of faith don't want anything to do with you, that's a problem. That's a real problem. Jesus himself modeled to us that there were people who were outside the bounds of church, outside the bounds of life of God, and they enjoyed his company. And he hung out with them. He chose to hang out with them. Now, this usually turns into some people's mind of, well, are we going to start having a Bible study down at the Buckhorn because we want to go where the sinners are and all the... <laughs> maybe, if God calls you to that, Maybe. But that, like, don't, don't stretch this to just be, I'm going to go to where the drinking is, and I'm going to go be Jesus to people. Like, that's, you're missing the point, that Jesus had relationship with people around him, and they asked him to come along, and they actually said, hey, I know who you are. I think my friends should get to know you, too. I'm going to throw a party, and they're going to come and enjoy with you. Are you the kind of person that celebrates in that celebration? Are you the kind of person that basks in that kind of place where you can have a good time? You can laugh. It's, it's sad to me when you know Christians who know the truth, they know the end, they know their salvation is secure in heaven, they have everything to be filled with joy about, and sometimes they're the most unhappy, can you say crotchety in church? I don't know. The most stale, most, ugh, just nobody, crusty, maybe is a better word. You don't want to be around them. You're like, oh, I just can't, you know, the, the world's going to hell, and we're having this, and blah, 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 blah. praise Jesus. Where's your joy? Where, where's the happiness? You know what, you know the end of the story. And you're the one who's so antagonistic, like, oh, where's, where's the happiness? Where's the joy? Now, this continues after Jesus is hanging out. He's hung out with the, these tax collectors. The Pharisees come to him and say, you're hanging out with sinners. They're unclean. How can this rabbi hang out with the tax collectors? That's a terrible example. You are a man of God teaching the word of God. You must be well kept and dressed and you should only speak certain ways and you should only be with certain people and... I didn't grow up in church, so I was never around that. I, I just kind of went in all me. 
And so I was never, I never had that pressure growing up as a kid in a church or in a, around an expression of faith in that way to where you had to, well, I take that back. When I started going to church, I did start buying some khakis because <laughs> it seemed like no one around me was wearing blue jeans. It's like, well, I should probably buy some khakis. Thankfully, I was working in a men's clothing store and got them really cheap. But when you have to follow a dress code and be a certain way and have a level of perfection on the outside, that's when things start to tear up on the inside. And Jesus is fighting against this. And he's telling them, I didn't come here to talk to you religious people who already follow God and follow the word. I came here to hang out with the sinners. So, back off. God's trying to call us back to that for which he created us, to worship him, to worship him and to enjoy him forever. Jesus celebrated life's happy moments by attending these parties. And in every place, he was teaching he was teaching, he was discipling, he was involved, but he was bringing people along with him to the party. His first miracle, recorded in the Gospel of John in John chapter 2, is turning water into wine. He didn't heal anybody that we have recorded. He didn't do any of that kind of stuff. He turned water into wine to keep the party going. And his mom came to him and said, this is a, this is a, there's a party foul about to happen. They're about to run out of wine. This is terrible for the celebration. It's supposed to be a place where there, it's a, weddings are an example of the covenant of God with his people. And this party, lacking the, the correct amount of wine, is going to lead to people, the fear was, not to see the celebration with God going on forever. So Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. In the, in the text, it was the good wine. Because what would happen is you would serve the good wine to start, and as people got a little tipsy, then you brought out the cheap wine. You have the good bottles of the nice $20 to $50 bottles of wine, and when everyone's had a few glasses, then you break out the box wine, because no one can tell the difference after that. <laughs> I'm not poo-pooing all of you box wine drinkers, but you know what I mean. And then, so he keeps the party going. His first miracle is a celebration. His first miracle is continuing the opulence of what heaven is going to be like. A celebration with God the Father. And Tozer, when he wrote this, um, he's writing at a time when there's this tension happening in the church about celebration and, and stinginess. And he's, he, if you've read any of Tozer, he's full of one-liner and coffee cup passages, not passages, quotes. And by him saying, God is trying to call us back to that for which he created us, to worship him and to enjoy him forever. If we trace back to the garden... There was a constant presence of, with God, constantly with him. That's the celebration. You're with him. Discipleship isn't just learning about Jesus. It's a constant desire to be with him. I want to be with the Father. I want to be with Dad. I want to be with Papa. I want to hang out with Jesus. I don't want to just read the plan and check it off and write my, in my journal and do my 10 minutes of quiet time. I want to sit with Jesus because he's everything. He's amazing, and he fulfills me in ways that nothing else can. Sometimes that requires a celebration to remind us of that. Continuing Mark, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw his eating, I already said this, this one. 
Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came. I copied and pasted and forgot I left one. Teacher faux pas, sorry. John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Like That should be the longing of our hearts. That the practice of fasting, which we know was instituted for us to to draw closer to God. We know that it was supposed to be a place where you would, it's really supposed to be a practice of getting rid of all distractions, even preparing food, and it's a time of reflection and prayer. But when it becomes a ritual just to show how spiritual you are, which the Pharisees grew to the place where they would fast every Tuesday and Thursday. They grew to a place where they told, that's why Jesus makes fun of them in the Sermon on the Mount for telling everyone they're fasting. The point is to draw you closer to God in that time of, casting everything else away but the pharisees used fasting as an example of life is so bad things are so bad i'm going to fast so that god will move in this and god will change this and it was a solemn and a depressing and a you know the world is falling apart and it what sometimes there's fasting that leads us into a time of deep prayer for those things in our lives But it shouldn't be a constant practice of every week I need to deprive myself of food so I feel really bad because only when I feel really bad do I feel close to God. That's not the point of fasting. The point of fasting, especially the New Testament, is for us to get rid of all the distractions so that we can just focus. We have extra time for God. John ushered in a season of fasting. When John the Baptist called for fasting and repentance, it was in that solemn, where is God, we need you. When Jesus talks about fasting in the New Testament, he's not talking about the same kind of fasting. Jesus called for a joyful celebration because the time of salvation had come. He's here. That's what he's addressing here. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? If you go to a wedding celebration, he's just talked about it a few verses before, If you go to a wedding and you're celebrating the joining of husband and wife and someone brought you wedding cake, Mm, there's nothing like wedding cake, right? Decadent, opulent, full of sugar. Some people put like piles of buttercream and I know it's close to lunch, but mm, so good. And if someone brought it to you, if the bride and the groom were serving it at each table and they brought it to you, you said, I'm sorry, I'm fasting. I'm not here to celebrate your day. I'm not here to celebrate the joining of two souls. I'm not here to celebrate this beautiful picture of the gospel. I, I'm, I'm trying to pray. Sorry. It would be rude. It would be against the cultural norms. It would be against the point of the wedding ceremony. And so Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is not the time to talk about, I'm trying to, it's my New Year's resolution not to have so much sugar. Now, we've all been there where maybe the buttercream is just a little too thick, and so we just like scoop out the cake under it, but how rude is it if you're sitting there as a wedding guest and you let it pass by? Jesus is saying, while I'm here, they're not going to fast. There's coming a time when they need to fast because things are going to be hard, but it's going to be out of celebration. It's going to be out of an understanding that their salvation is secure. 
and we fast for God to move. We fast for God to answer prayer. We fast for God to help us through the tough time. We don't fast so that the Messiah would come. We don't fast so that we would see God in his glory. We fast because we long for that day to come. It's a celebration. It's a party. Jesus liked to party. I think this is out of a a book that I'm reading right now. Um, I'll show you the title in a minute. But the issue and the existential question that the author talks about, and I never really read it this way, that most time in our society of the world existing, most people did not question the existence of God. They did not question the existence of a higher power. They didn't have those questions. They would have, like, if you go back and read Plato and Aristotle and you read some of the ancient authors, like, there's an assumption that there's something bigger. There's an assumption that there's, now they don't call it God, and we can debate the founding fathers and the beginnings of our country. We can have all those conversations. But for most of the time of human beings on the planet, people have looked to the heavens, people have looked to see that there is something bigger. The question of the Old Testament is, can I know that God? Can I know him? Can I have a relationship with him? Or do I have to do all of these things that lead to that relationship? The big question has been, can I really be near the presence of? Can I be in the the airspace of this God? Can I trust all these things? And the author says, because a pillar of fire doesn't provoke doubt, but neither does it provoke intimacy. The hope of discipleship is that intimate relationship. And I think celebration gets us there. I think coming together as a church family and friends and having people in your home and going to a party and enjoying a celebration, I think that's the thing that's often missing in our discipleship. We make it a classroom effort. We make it even a, a silent personal effort. And we don't celebrate that with each other. Like think about what we just witnessed. Two men saying that they want to follow Christ in the waters of baptism. And some of you even clapped. Now, if I'm going to follow a strict understanding of fasting, and not, if I'm going to be a Pharisee, well, why are you clapping? Of course they got baptized. That's what you do. You come to faith. You follow in obedience. You get baptized. You should have just sat there and said, well, that's what you do. Next. But you didn't. You clapped. You felt a joy and a presence of God and two men saying yes in obedience. And you're like, this is awesome. Let's clap for this. Well, that's, that'd be silly unless we are prone to celebrate. And I think that the question we have to ask is, can we know God? And the answer is yes. The book I've been reading recently, Praying Like Monks and Living Like Fools, um, it's very helpful for me because I'm pretty steeped in the fool part. I'm trying to learn to be better about praying like a monk. And the author really drives home all of, like, I, I'm, it's the kind of book I've had to slow down and read over and over again because there's just so much richness in there. Because if I'm honest, I'm prone to the head stuff. I'm prone to the academic stuff. I'm prone to, to knowing God in those ways and very recently, in the last six months or so, I've been more opened up to really feeling his presence in deeper ways. 
And not that I feel I've missed out anything. It's just a new, it's a new way for me to see God. It's a new way for me to experience him. The classic that I've read three or four different times is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I would highly recommend either of these books to you if you want to read a book. And Packer's entire, this whole book, he's trying to drive home that you can know the living God. That he's not some on a cloud, unattainable person. That he's your dad. The, the, the monk book um, brings up a point I never really thought of. That we, we pray the Lord, and I'm not advocating for changing anything, so all of you people that would get mad at a change of tradition, just settle down. In other Christian expressions, they don't call it the Lord's Prayer. They call it the Our Father. And honestly, I like that better. Because if you read through the Lord's Prayer, and you're ta- it's, there's a connection to this new way of Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray with saying that this God is your Father. He's as close and as intimate as your dad. He's not on a cloud. He's not somewhere to be feared. He's right near to you. And so saying that prayer is the our, the our Father has a little bit of more intimate feeling to me because, but because Protestants rejected Catholicism and can't stand any parts of it, we have to go, it's the Lord's Prayer. More authoritarian, it's the way you pray because, and I don't like it. So I'm not saying we're going to change it all around, but for me, I'm going to call it the Our Father from now on. I don't have any rosaries yet, but just leave me alone. So my question to you, when's the last time you celebrated? When's the last time you attended a party with connecting with people and building relationships? When's the last time you had some people around you that don't know Jesus? For those of you that are Christians in the room, those of you that aren't Christians and you're here visiting with us, when's the last time you hung out with some Christians and they didn't rag on you and you had a good time with them? When's the last time you were able to laugh and have a good time and maybe a good drink or have good food And you actually enjoyed the presence of these people that say they love Jesus. If you're the type of Christian that you only hang out with Christians. That's not a bad thing for your personal growth and development and discipleship. But you should have a whole life understanding that every person you encounter is an image bearer of God that's either with the Lord or needs to be introduced to the Lord. When's the last time you had a party? birthday party, wedding, celebration, just laughed and had a good time. When's the last time you laughed so hard your gut hurt? There is a sometimes inappropriate series of memes and messages and videos that are sent between my brother and I and even my children and I and friends and I. And there's so much that, I mean, we have lines we won't cross, but there's so much laughter and joy to be had are you so overwhelmed by the world by the pressure that it's hard to even smile and to celebrate and have a good time i hope wednesday you'll come it's six o'clock and we can show you through some food and through some togetherness that it's okay to laugh and have a good time and i hope you would then take that and model it in your own lives Do you celebrate your walk with Christ? 
Yeah, there's work to be done. There's things to learn. There's things to know and to grow deeper. But do you enjoy that journey? So, what we do in worship, and I had a lot more to say, but I'm not going to. What we do on Sunday morning, think about the things that are laid out in this service. They're all to point you to a celebration and a relationship with our Father. Singing evokes an emotion that connects to us in ways that it's hard to do any other way. And this is a guy who can't sing. I get it. Sometimes if I'm standing next to someone who's not a bad singer, I feel bad because I can throw them off. I get it. But think about all the ways in which our services are trying to point you to something. We spend time in worship, take-home theology, a beautiful way of celebrating. We take communion together, a remembrance of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We share each other's burdens in prayer. I watch it happen. When someone shares a prayer request, people start to talk, what can I do, how can I help, how can I... We, we're supposed to carry each other's burdens. We then open up the Word, and you get to sit for 30 minutes to an hour of an amazing expository preacher. No matter who's on stage, not just me, not just me. And I hope that the Word connects through the worship, through song, the worship in sharing burdens, the worship through the Word, and then we close, and then you're sent out. You're sent out to take the love of Christ that you have, or you're growing in, or you're seeking, and to take it to the rest of the, the world. That as we grow in our faith, we grow in our love, we grow in our affection, we give it away. That what we do on a Sunday morning, feasting, dancing, well, we don't really dance, but I'm probably a better dancer than singer, and that's not saying a whole lot. We celebrate. This is all just the beginnings of what's going to happen. Uh, this week, um, I had the honor of doing a funeral for someone I never met. And I'll have the same honor on Tuesday this coming week. And I'm all, I always feel, and I, I say this, I always feel a little robbed when I don't get to know the person I'm helping with the memorial service with. Because I start to hear stories about people, and I know I hear only the good stuff, and nobody really shares the bad stuff at someone's memorial service. And I feel like, man, I, don't, I wish I could have got to know this person. I feel a little slighted because I didn't get to have a significant conversation with this person who's now with the Lord. And it kind of hit me this week as I was at the, at the gravesite. Like, that's, that's part of what eternity is going to be in heaven and on the new earth, is getting to know and hearing the stories of God in all of these people that have gone before us that I've never met and have no idea who they are. Like, that, that's going to take a long time. And that's going to be quite the celebration. Man, what did God do in your life? What did he do in your life? Oh, man, you can't believe this, and I saw this, and this is what happened, and look, we get to be with him now. We're walking in the still of the garden. Like, all these lives, just in our little cemetery here, and think about that around the world for thousands of years, how many people, lovers of Christ, we get to encounter, we get to celebrate forever. That sounds pretty cool. I have no idea exactly what it looks like. But the idea of it makes me really excited. Because I like to party. Madagascar song? Never mind. This is what I want to leave you with. 
I want to leave you with, I have to read it because this guy wrote it so eloquently. Parts of it. The good news, you're loved and loved right now without qualification or restriction. Loved unconditionally for who you are. Loved in a way that you can't lose. He loves you. God loves you. Too often, I think, because we have this instinct in us that we're unlovable. God can't love me. You don't know what I have over here. That is a, that's a lie from the enemy. God loves you. He wants to celebrate with you. He wants to have time with you. He wants to be near you. He wants to be as close as a father. He wants to be as important in your life as any other relationship you have. And he wants to guide you through everything that you're going through and help you all along the way. And he wants to celebrate each and every time you take a step closer to him and away from the lie of the sin of darkness that's pulling you away from him. He loves you. And too often, we let ourselves get in the way of that celebration. God can't love me. I was thinking about this the other day. I did this the other week. I have this in my past. There is no way. I just showed you an example of the tax collectors in Mark chapter 2. Jesus hung out with people who were... We, when we see tax collector, I think we think IRS agent. That is not what a tax collector in the New Testament is. A tax collector in the New Testament is someone who's raising funds for the occupying force. This would be like a soldier serving in Afghanistan and then collecting funds to fund ISIS, who's then blowing up his friends outside the gate. That's what a tax collector is in the New Testament. And this tax collector climbs out of the booth and says, I want that. I want Jesus. And he's so overwhelmed in the love that is poured on him, he invites all of his traitor friends to come over for a party. The Pharisees aren't just saying, why are you hanging out with that government official? You know, government works sinful. It's not what he's saying. These Pharisees see Jesus hanging out with the opposition, and Jesus says, I'm not here for you saved people. I'm here for the ones who are sick and need healing. That should lead us to celebrate. No matter what has gone on in your past, no matter what you feel like is pulling you away from God, it is not as powerful as His love for you. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you, and He wants to celebrate with you. And so do we. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us to party. I'm going to pray for us to celebrate. I'm going to pray for you to feel the love of God that we see throughout the Word and we see in each other's lives. And I'm going to pray for us to grow in our desire to celebrate His love. Not only in our own walks and our own growth, but every part of our lives. Are you so oozing the love and the joy of God even in the hard times that people go, what is it with you? Anybody else would have been crushed. Anybody else would have been angry and bitter and wanted nothing to do with God. And for some reason, you keep saying he's good. That is a light in the darkness for people who would never come into a church, who would never crack open a Bible. They are watching your joy. Sometimes the best way to show them is to party with them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you, we beg you,
to fill us with joy that comes only from our relationship in you. We are prone to being negative about ourselves. We're prone to carrying around sin. We're prone to feeling that we aren't lovable, that we don't measure up, that we're not good enough. And I pray that we would see through not only the truth in the printed word, but in the testimony of the people around this room, that none of us are perfect and none of us have earned your love. You give it as a gift because that's how you are as a good father. You love your kids. A good parent would never withhold love from his or her children. Yeah, there might need to be some correction or discipline, but good parents don't hold back love, and you don't either. Help us to feel that truth, Lord. That you don't want us just to follow a bunch of rules and expectations. You want relationship with us. You long for us. Help us to have that desire, Lord. And as we grow, for our whole lives to be permeated with that truth, that we would celebrate. We would celebrate baptisms and births and weddings and anniversaries and just random Tuesdays. We would celebrate. Help us to have smiles on our faces and the warmth of your presence in our hearts. We love you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.